Welcome uh, to the Dredgeland podcast interview spectacular. We're right. very right is that right? You got because it right last time, time, last time you, last time I said get it didn't right. get Did any of it right. There were no words involved Carry last on. time. Thanks. And now we've got words involved. Anyway, sorry. Introduce me. Who am I? Well, that's that's what we're trying to find out. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, one of the most intelligent and respected comedians in the country. It's Mr. Stuart Lee. He is, isn't he? No, I'm only joking. It's Mr. Robin Ince. Yes. Um, now, um, when did Stuart say no to this? I haven't asked him yet, but I'm just waiting for that. <laughs> um, well known for your impressions. Um, what would you say is the? I mean, can you can you can you maybe give us a bit of Brian Cox? I mean, I know many people have probably said this to you in the well, past. Or is it difficult to do that on? No, the spot like it's that? because because we're recording this in the room where we we quite often work together as well, and it's uh, he believes that I don't get his voice right. I think also I have braces now, which has affected my Mark Gatiss. I've noticed because Mark Gatiss is a, is a lot of teeth. So so if you're doing Farline Farline, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, Mark Gatiss has a lovely soft timbre, uh, and uh, and so Brian, you became became. The universe is over 12 years old and some of the shiniest bits are just over there. And I know it's probably, and in some ways sometimes it sounds more camp than him, but only if you don't know him. Because we spend a lot of time, you know, on tour listening to show tunes. You know, we were speeding out of, of Plymouth Pavilions straight away into Barbara Streisand doing uh, um, Sending the Clowns. But we what a great! Like what a great version! You didn't like it. Well, no, it's great, but we like the fragmented versions, of, like Judy Dench. Judy Dench, I think we've agreed it was a forty-eight date tour. It took a while to get there, but we agreed that Judy was undoubtedly one of our favourite uh, um, singers for Stephen Sondheim. Has she got an unconventional voice? Am I right in thinking, uh, Judy Dench? There's a, a sing- there's a, a dryness to it. There's a you know it, it has it has that slightly cracked element to it. I mean, I would love to have seen her as Sally Bowles in Cabaret. I was lucky enough to see Jane Horrocks twenty years ago at the Donmar Warehouse do Sally Bowles, which was just and I was I missed. Did either you see Jane Horrocks doing that show? I forget what it was called now. Oh, oh, kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, where she basically had a band and was doing loads of Joy Division and The Cure <laughs> right. and stuff like I'm that. Really and how did I find out about that when it was too late? Because I was off. Ah, oh, that what a treat that would have been. So you, you you had the cure on a, at one of your um, legendary gigs, I believe. Is that is that right? Yeah, we had it at Hammersmith, where uh, for years, for about eleven, twelve years, I think now, I've been putting on weird Christmas gigs. You used to be at the Bloomsbury Theatre. We also did some at Hammersmith, and then they become a regular thing at Hammersmith, and and I put them together with Brian Cox. And when the cure said yes, it was two years ago. They did two nights for us. Uh, and incredibly generous as well, really. Uh, and and Robert said, you know, what what set do you want us to do? He said, I said, you do anything. You're the cure. You're allowed. <laughs> I can't say we only want the hits because you're doing us a favour. And that's what they did, though. They went on and they did uh, Just Like Heaven, Friday I'm In Love. Um, I had a word with Brian and said, I think I thought it would be fun if before the interval Robert came on and did a piano and umpar version of Love Cats, which he did. Beautiful. And which was an absolute delight uh, to watch. Um, so we had the cure. And then the next year we had New Order. And we've really set this awkward bar because it used to just be like me, Brian and Ben Goldacre and, you know, some of my friends that I work with quite a lot. You know, good people like Joanna Neary or Grace Petrie there, Josie Long. But then, as well as quite often still having those people, once you've had The Cure and Chris Hadfield, The Astronaut, a new order, and then this year we ended with Duran Duran. So you don't really know, because now when the audience go in, they're like, well, who are we going to have? And should we say, you know, please welcome Wigfield, then, <laughs> much as I think they'll be glad to see Wigfield's well, they're still going to go, 
Yeah, we used to be Duran Duran and The Cure, didn't it? I mean, we started with public service broadcasting this year, and they are just one of my favorite. Do you listen to them at all? I don't know them, but I know you're into them. But you should them. like them, you see, because they do. Yeah. They they take wonderful samples of maybe Leslie Howard talking about the Spitfire, uh, or these fantastic, you know, JFK speech about why we're going to go to the moon, uh, why we must go to the moon. Uh, bits of NASA recordings, and then they mix that with kind of, you know, I suppose it is some form of rock-based dance music. And for me, that is a delightful uh, thing to go, there's Leslie Howard, there's some rock-based dance music, and they're all together as one. Well, that, that, that reminds me a bit of the beginning of The Queen is Dead, where it starts with Cicely Courtenage, is yeah. it? And goes into a rock, The Queen is Dead. Great bit track. of drumming as well. Amazing. It's a Incredible. fantastic, I think that is yeah. one of, the, probably my two favourite bits of, of drumming at the moment are <laughs> that, and the incredibly long version of uh, Panic in Detroit uh, from David Bowie live at Nassau, which is like 11 minutes long. And they, they used to, work, when the, the live album came out, they did cut it down to about six minutes. Um, then they've now put it back. And, and it's entirely extraneous. It's not really required. So you read a lot of uh, art books. Um, and what you're big, I mean, you're famously a big book sort of nerd, if I could use that word. Is that like a major part of your life, you know, reading books, writing? Uh, I love reading. And I'm very, I'm, next year is I'm going to finish each book that I read because I don't do that. So I, you, what do you do? You skim I through? I start and I go, <laughs> oh, that's an interesting idea. That's, uh, I mean, anyone who's seen my stand-up will know that it's <laughs> fragmented, uh, disjointed, uh, frequently accidentally absurdist through no intention apart from the fact that my mind is then suddenly halfway through an adverb decided to move into an unneeded preposition which leads somewhere else. And... Um, and so that's, but I've decided now I must just sit down and finish each book. You have um, a music podcast and you have a, a book podcast. Is that, I mean, what, is that something you really, is that like a passion thing? It's just, I, I like, I mean, Josie may be me because we did Shambles a few years ago. What's the difference between book shambles and, and that? It literally was, we were going to start doing it again. And I said, I think we need to create some form of what appear to be limits, but obviously aren't really. So was so the first one just a, a free it was, form? It, yeah, it was originally called uh, Show and Tell uh, before uh, there was an um, agency called Show and Tell and before Avalon made a TV series called Show and Tell in which people show and told. The difference was we actually did uh, Show and Tell. That was the idea. Was, uh, someone like Steve Merchant, uh, Mark Steele, whoever, would come on and they would bring an object. <laughs> and at some point we would get around to talk about it though sometimes we didn't I think Steve brought some um, saucy um, salt and pepper shakers from Amsterdam that he found a cock and some <laughs> anyway looks at, um, uh, and so that was kind of and, and then it just became a, a conversation and then I thought well actually it, you need so if we say to someone we'd like to talk about your favourite books we'll talk a little bit about the process of if, you, if they're an author the way you write whatever it might be we can still go off on loads of tangents, but we've started off with mm -hmm. the appearance of a framework. And the people... I mean, I did an interview with Philip Ridley. Do you know Philip Ridley? Who's he now? He, uh, he wrote... It, probably one of his most famous plays is Pitchfork Disney. He uh, did one of my favourite films of all time, which is called The Reflecting Skin, with uh, Viggo Mortensen, one of his first films, and Lindsay Duncan. It is a remarkable piece of work. Uh, he wrote the original screenplay for The Craze, the version that was with the Kemp uh, yeah, yeah. twins. Um, he's, the Kings were going to play that originally. 
Really? That would be great. It didn't work, yeah. They that didn't do would, it in the end. Really? Ray and Dave were going to do the craze at <laughs> in that film. Oh, I always wanted. Do you remember those two twins who had crazy hair and looked a little bit like Ken Dodd? I always yeah. thought making them the yeah. craze. Well, I, can't, yeah. I can't remember Jedward. Jedward. No, Jedward. That's, the, uh, that's the craze of musical. <laughs> Sorry, it, but, but it was so um, your podcast uh, it took shape. Yeah, and so but but yeah, Philip Ridley was just uh, he was on, and we sitting there and talking a little bit about books. He was he was a very, he had a kind of asthma as a child that meant he was bed bound, so he just read and read and read and read, and then he started talking about the fact that when he first heard Shostakovich on the radio, just like he was brought up in the East End in one of those streets where literally everyone in the street was a member of your family. They really were. It was like that, and. Uh, and it, it's just a really that chance to sit opposite someone, and he is yeah just a again you you the passion that he has to constantly create as well always. You're like that, aren't you? Well, I've got lazier because I don't really do stand up, but I like to you know I, I try and write something every day, and I try and and you know I'm both commissioned stuff, and then I'll also write just for myself and. Uh, I'm not missing doing live performance that much, though. I've kind of become a little bit more introverted. I like sitting and reading and writing and going around galleries and looking at things. I'm kind of going through that stage at the moment where, you know, when I do go out there, the first thing that happens when I walk off stage is go, oh, I wonder what kind of dick I look like there. I'm probably a bit of an idiot. And, which, of course, I always thought anyway. But it becomes slightly more exaggerated because I'm not doing it as often. You know, some of the calluses that I built up by performing every single night, uh, the did flesh has grown weak and soft again. Did you do that as, like, a sort of means to an end? Or was it that, you know, you wanted to do stand-up for, for the love of it, you know? Or was it... No, I loved... I really loved stand-up. When I watched... Uh, you know, when I first saw Rick Mail doing his characters and when I first saw Alexi Sale... And all of those people, it was, it was part, you know, it was, the, it was, I'd already loved comedy, like many people of my generation, of course, absolutely adored the goodies. Yeah, And uh, all of the sitcoms, all the of good, those things. The, the goodies is completely weird when you watch it now. I don't know if you've ever seen it recently, but you sort of think, what the hell is this? <laughs> it's so avant garde and odd, and yet it was the biggest thing going at the time. Yeah, it's that strange mix of, it's kind of a kid's show. But it actually, the, a lot of the ideas are not kids' show stuff, and the, and it's yeah. a constant, you know, kind of dare to the BBC props department, isn't it? You know, yeah. l- much like Reeves and Mortimer. Yeah. Let's write a sketch with this in it. Then someone's <laughs> going to have to make it, you know, and all of those. But it's um, and then though, but when alternative comedy, when I first started reading about that, when I was like 10, 11 years old, and then I'd just see little snippets of it on television, and I still, you know, I absolutely adored Rick Mail. I think that, you know, like most of, of uh, and then for the next generation with Bottom, you know, that meant a lot to people who hadn't grown up. I mean, I well, that, still that think it's great. Well, that's my first. Randy. That's my first insight into alternative comedy. Ninety one yeah. was yeah the breakthrough. Lexi Sale. Bottom, but that was huge, huge. And it, it just, is great actually. A lot of the episodes I, are very good. The, yeah, the, well, the ability yeah. to structure an entire sitcom in one space with two characters, which expands and contracts, yes. it's, it's an amazing mm. piece of work. And I think it's timeless. I think you right. could, you, any generation could watch that and enjoy it for yeah. a number of different reasons. But, but, did, did you ever see Rick Mayall do stand-up or anything like that live? No, I never did, unfortunately. I, was, I remember that one of the, the saddest things for me was when Comic Relief was announced, the show at the Shaftesbury Theatre. Yeah, that was the moment and where he was... I remember getting yeah. on to... I had to go to a phone box to try and buy tickets. 
and I couldn't get through to you know because of course this was it was much harder to get you had to get through to someone on the phone it's not the and by the time I got through the only tickets I had left were 50 pound tickets and I was 15 years old I didn't have 50 pounds so I then managed to get through to my mum and dad can I borrow 50 pounds Rick Mayer was doing this thing and then by the time they'd said yes I ran, and they'd gone as well and and I still love I, I've done I did a, an event about Rick Mayo about three or four I've noticed basically after a few months after he died no, there didn't seem to have been any big live celebrations mm. and I, I fortunately Alexi Sell said he'd come along as well and we'd have a chat about it because they were of course very close and um and we opened with, I just said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome on stage Rick Mayer. It was in a big cinema. And it just there on screen was him running out and doing, do you love me? Do you think I'm great? Do you really like me? And all of that stuff. Um, I remember watching that over and over and over again. The total commitment of that performance. The utter stupidity of that performance. I mean, and that incredible love. You know, when you were a teenager and you will never experience love... As in, you know, the, the love of cultural icons or the, possibly the heartbreak of those who, you know, the combination of the two, but those moments where everything is, you know... I, I remember being on holiday and there was a Channel 4 strike and so they weren't showing a live show. And they were showing um, Fistful of Traveller Checks and we were on holiday and I didn't know it was on and I missed it and I'd never seen it. And it was just... Uh, uh, calm down, calm down. This week now. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so is that what made you... <clears throat> start to write and start to perform yeah I think it was probably it was just seeing the uh, I think I always wanted to be a writer of some description certainly from the age of like 12 or 13 I thought I'd like to write something and uh, and then I think I'll turn to comedy I thought I'd really like to do that that would just be amazing and um, and I do sometimes think uh, it, it feels to me you know when you suddenly remind yourself of some of the situations you might have ended up in and go, this is, you know, the first time that I was on stage with Alexi Sale in a in a basement not far off Stoke Newington, uh, <laughs> famously yeah. the frequent subject of his stand-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And afterwards I just kind of said, because he hadn't really done any stand-up no, for a long years, time. Years, yeah. And I said, look, do you want to come along? He said, what do I do? I said, well, we can have a chat or whatever. He went, okay. And he cycled there, of course. And he said, I don't really know what to do. He said, you know, I've just been doing book reading stuff. I said, well, why don't I, I can, I said, I don't want to get in your way. I can just sit near you, like in the audience, and I'll just shout. And then eventually went, I'll just stay there. And so we just did a back and forth on stage, just chatting, you know, and, and getting laughs with Alexi Sale. And then sitting drunk on the train home, just going, fucking hell, that was the, one of the reasons that I uh, have ended up going in the direction I have. The, one of the main reasons. Someone that when they were on telly, whatever they were doing, I'd go, Blair, Lex Sales on tonight, brilliant. It's going to be amazing. What did you think of OTT? Do you remember that? Yeah, it's really weird looking back at some of those bits he that are on, on YouTube. That, show, wasn't it? that was yeah. the first TV exposure, I think, yeah. for Alexi Sale. He's on a show that had Bernard Manning the next week. I mean, <laughs> he has a story, <laughs> and I can't remember it. He has one about sitting in a cab with one of those northern comics, basically chatting to him and realising the difference, you know, in some ways. Uh, but you're right, it is absolutely remarkable when you, uh, Alexi would be there doing, I can't remember if he did the Dr. Martin song on that, but he did, yes, he, he did. Well, he some. certainly did, like, the anthem, the national anthem and things like that. And He had records out, didn't he? He was a strange Cac, comedian. Yeah, the, he uh, and he then had the, uh, not what they call not the fish tapes. The, the fish uh, tapes, yeah, I think. Yeah, the fish tapes, which was actually originally broadcast on Capital Radio. Right. So I'm pretty certain it was Capital Radio. And, you know, the same place as Captain Kremen, Kenny Everett and Captain mm. Kremen, all that kind of stuff. So what was it like doing a, a, a book shambles with Alexi Sale? Did you think, 
Well, we've done. I've done a shambles with him a few years ago, and and since then, you know, I've I've seen him more often, and and he's done some other gigs and things like that. And it was what's interesting about, like, of course, many people is he can be very quietly spoken, yeah, and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, talks yeah. sometimes very slowly. And then that was the delight of I've I've told this story before, so I apologise for it. But it's like when he did another stand-up gig. There was uh, it was a gig for Kensal Green Library, support for Kensal Green Library. Um, council wanted to close it down and he came along and his his wife Linda who uh, is goes to many of his gigs tremendously you know they're, they're, it, it, it's it's a great partnership of two people uh, Linda and him and she she is very funny and some of the bits in his second volume of autobiography some of the things that she says to him and you know she's a very very smart person and she came along and Alexi had said to me on about the third time I went when Linda hates you <laughs> and uh, so he went yeah she went Alexi what are you doing going back into stand up why have you listened to this man you were number 16 or whatever in the top 100 stand ups you know you'll dilute to the legacy yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. and so we're sitting there in Kensal Green Library and Alexi goes on and he starts off again with the first time quite gentle stuff some of the nice you know anecdotes that some of which appeared in the books and some of which are you know nice as a and then someone shouted something out. Someone had got overly excited. Like that bit sometimes when you go and see someone who used to be in a punk band and one of the old punks suddenly goes, oh, throws a thing, goes, I don't know why I threw it, it's just suddenly I thought it was 1978. And so this guy shouts something out and Lexi just suddenly leapt up in the air and went, that's right, that's right, oh yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. And uh, and I just looked at Linda and she just put her head in her hands. Like That was the moment where Lexi had gone from, well, I've returned a little bit to be a raconteur <laughs> and suddenly the stand-up's alive again and it was you know he would the, wow. the stand-up had returned and um, I mean I think he would have done it anyway but it was just that moment of actually seeing suddenly the return of, of that manic energy I'd like to ask you about the time you met Steve Martin briefly if that's alright yes what happened there well was he someone you it was followed just and- mad <laughs> It's insane. What was that? Still about? I was in Where the Hollywood Hills. It was at Eric Idle's house, and he invited us round to dinner because he is uh, a very welcoming man. And we had dinner with uh, Steve Martin and his wife, and uh, Jeff Lynn and his partner, uh, and there was Brian and me, and uh, Eric and Tanya Idle, and, um, and Sasha, our producer. And you're just going... And Brian said, oh, right, anyway, you know dinner tonight? You know who's... Oh, I'm not going to tell you who's coming. He kept it, you know, like... <laughs> and, and, I mean, apart from the else, I think Born Standing Up uh, by Steve Martin is one of the greatest books written by a stand-up comic about stand-up comedy. Did you... And you related to it totally, then? Uh, I didn't necessarily relate to it, but I understood totally. Of, you know, I couldn't... Uh, um, and when I met him, you know, one of the first things I, I said was, oh, I just want to get this out of the way. I said, I think your book is, is a remarkable piece of uh, work. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, th- films like, whether it's Roxanne, The Jerk, Man, Man With Two Brains is one of my favourites of all time. And also knowing that, of course, he admired Dennis Potter. And, you know, oh, Penis, from, Penis from Heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, that I think is probably one of the most, you know, because we were doing an American tour, so that was mad enough. The next <laughs> night we were going to be playing the Ricardo Montalban Theatre. So a theatre named after Ricardo Montalban, uh, run by his son, lovely theatre in downtown LA. And all of these things are, there are, and a, the trouble was also, it's a point where I'd hit real tour exhaustion. And I was having some problems where just, I'd like, 
here I was seeing things that for me were barely imaginable the possibility the fact of playing to audiences in Chicago in New York San Francisco LA sold out audiences lovely lovely uh, really fun shows to do because they'd heard you on the radio the radio and it's kind of you know and, and we had quite a few people who listened to the, you know as a podcast in, in, in America and that's what's lovely. so great isn't it about the internet and yeah. podcast it just goes all over the world you don't know who's listening anyone can listen and the next thing you know you're playing in America and it was yeah it was just ridiculous and it was uh, um, and then you sit there and there's Steve Martin opposite you and just chatting and yeah. you can never totally relax that book because is it's amazing, Steve Martin. Isn't it? That book mm. is incredible. I mean, he had such an uh, he's had such a peculiar life. He you know worked in Disneyland as a kid and all this sort of thing. And you know, and he it, what he, he was thinking about his comedy in this sort of philosophical way. Mm. Um, is that what you do? No, I don't have the depth. You know, it's is your thing more, my, my, you're my, more instinctive. Or? Yeah, I think I think it's you know I I now I it took me years to work out what I should be. What are you, what do you think you are now? Just this, uh, you know, overly excited, shouting, angry, <laughs> happy, you know, yeah. moron who's been reading one third of a lot of books, and uh, <laughs> and that I, and that I now have I, I you know during the shows I do I've worked out what the purpose of them is, which is one to hopefully be entertaining and make people laugh, but also I hope that at the end of the shows people have heard some ideas that they want to find out more about and that's why and also now I think if I went back and did stand up next year it again would be very much based around god damn it you've got to be kind Kurt Vonnegut which is you know to some sometimes the stand up shows I, th- I think it's very true of Josie Long show as, as well that is you're there to also g people up and say uh, there, there are more of us than you imagine and you know when you play somewhere like Burnley which you know has been a very deprived area, and you know Burnley Mechanics is never going to be a sellout gig for me. But the people who are in that room all want to have a conversation with you afterwards wow. and talk to each other and That's kind great. of go because yeah. that they don't realise there may be more of them than than they'd hope. And um, so you, how do you? So your what you're doing is sort of is is introducing these ideas or keeping them I hope, forefront. I hope some of the shows, as well as just being very stupid with lots of silly voices. Uh, always the silly voices. Uh, I put in a lot more silly voices than I used to. I love what silly voices. What are we talking about? Well, sometimes they will just be the you know the the, the Brian Blessed you know the the, the kind of uh, you know, I want to fly to Jupiter. It's a gas planet for fuck's sake. You know that kind of thing. And uh, and I also like, I mean and sometimes they'll just be made up stupid voices, which will be the voice that happens to be at that moment the one that comes into my head that I think that will work quite nicely with these sentences. So that's a bit like Robin Williams. Is is, is he? Again, without the you know the, the, the you know Robin Williams again was someone who uh, I think is uh, just a very again it's very not when when he died there were some of the stories that came out about him about his kindness I don't I know yeah I've, I've and, read some of them and extraordinary I, you know, extraordinary yeah comic I know who who had mental health problems and and um, had been going through depression. And you know, Robin Williams had probably bumped into him some New York club when he popped down to, to to do a gig, and then he found out his number, and every now and again he'd just suddenly get a call and he'd go, "Oh hi, it's Robin here. Just Good want to find out how you're going." And then you hear that lovely story about the the people in the donut shop. Have you seen that one? Where he just went over because they looked they the looked like sad, yeah. And then you someone yeah. says that that terrifying thing in, in its own way, which is that 
it was because he knew that pain so often that he could not bear to imagine that those people might be experiencing what he was experiencing. And I think that, you know, and I know there's lots of other things and rumours about him and stuff. And the, I, I, I talked a little bit about with Eric about, you know, when sometimes people say, you know, oh, he used to make material and stuff like that. And then other people kind of go, the thing was his mind was just full of stuff. Mm. And sometimes that stuff was something else. He, I mean, Mark Maron does that in his podcast where he, he's, he, he, in one episode of the, of the sitcom, he, he does this joke off the, off the cuff. Uh, on this uh, on Conan O'Brien and then the moment he says it he suddenly looks worried and he <laughs> yeah. comes off and the guys are going oh that was the best one oh Mark that was so good he was, and that line what a funny line what a very funny line and uh, <laughs> then and he's thinking I don't know if it's my line can we lose that line oh Mark that was the best line that was such a great line and then he works out who the comic was and it was some guy who's kind of barely working now being in prison and he has to get in contact with him but but I mean those are other things as well and, and people can have their own opinion about it. I mean I just really uh, in fact at that incredible moment of being at a bloody dinner party with Steve Martin I kept th- he was Robin Williams was one of the ghosts at the feast he was I mean that would have been a, probably a little under a year after he died but very much he you know he's no of course Steve Martin had done Waiting for Godot with him as well which I, I heard, wish I, I'd got to talk about I, I that I heard at that point I think this might have been a false rumour but I heard they didn't get on too well at that point I, d- I don't know I mean I presume that they may well have been trying to prove different things and but, also but, but then there's this thing actually about science on, on YouTube from a lot later it's Steve Martin talking to I can't remember who it is now but it's actually about science and they invite Robin Williams up from the audience and that is great mm. if you haven't seen that, that that's I haven't an interesting, that's an interesting clip but um, but 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 they were sort of influences on on yourself or yeah yeah very much and and I I think and it's it's good when you read about those you know once you get some of the background stories because also we're always you know, people are always digging around for the 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 thing again and unfortunately the negative side mm. of uh, and I think when those stories came out and I've never seen people. As uh, I think you said, you'd heard the documentary I did about. Kind I really of loved that. Yeah, I was listening. Again I wish we could have made that. it longer because the people we interviewed were so good, and so Simon Amstel and Joe Brand and and all those people. And, um, but yeah, I've never seen the level of, of of shock amongst a group of comedians uh, that night, sitting you know about to go on stage about to do uh, a panel with Eddie Peppertone or a little discussion with Eddie Peppertone about comedy, mental health. Right, really? And, <laughs> you know, we'd all just done a set there and then there was an interval and then Eddie and me were going to go and talk about comedy, me- mental health and uh, and uh, uh, Christian, who, who ran the gig. And then everyone's just looking at their phones and going, what the, what the... And I think also when something is when someone kills themselves, there is... Mm. And of course... I should then be very careful about saying that, as we know, there were many things going on in Robin Williams. This is not some sad clown story. This is about the devastating nature of, of a disease that removes your reality. So I, I, just, I just thought I'd better mention in case suddenly it sounds yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Would you know, you know what, it, what it was? Uh, it was... It's. Um, I'm trying to think. It's basically there's a... It, it has a, a Parkinson's quality to it, but it also okay. leads to uh, a form of uh, of dementia as well. And I've, right. it's totally slipped my mind now that so I mean, it so was. That's a, what and it was, right. and apparently, again, please do not t- you know do your own research on this. Um, but uh, 
he was he was getting um, delusions, and he it was like going, I don't know what happened, mm. and to have that removed from you, anyone will know, you know, anyone who's, who's seen someone who's had, you know, there are many different forms of course of dementia. You know, that moment of of your reality becoming so uncertain. What do you? What did you think of? Did you go? And, you went to see Billy Connolly recently. Is that right? I saw. Do you know what? I only saw the DVD. I, but I sat in an audience with a bunch of comedians at a screening thing, and it's great. It's so you know Billy. Con- well, he's the other one. Billy Connolly probably actually before anyone else before alternative comedy. I remember ringing up. Uh, was it LBC? I think it was. It might be Radio London when I was fifteen. Oh, Billy Connolly's on a bit. Make a phone call. Uh, hello. Uh, what, what do you want to ask Billy? Uh, I want to ask Billy what he thinks about uh, alternative comedy. Oh, what, what did he and, think? Of it? Uh, he said, "Well, it's what he's been doing all the time, and it's kind of great, and it's really wonderful." And yeah, that is still one of my favourite things because we were talking about Kenny Everett beforehand. Is when you see Kenny Everett and, and uh, Billy Connolly do sketches together. <laughs> what a delight! You know the. The, the the hinge and bracket one. <laughs> I'm a man, yeah. and the uh, yeah. then the, the right. him doing the the, the to- hello. I'm here in these gents, which is um, that. By the way, it's not me doing Billy Connolly. That is Kenny Everett playing this Scottish guy. Going, hello, and and then just Billy Connolly just corpsing. He's as as each yeah, time Kenny Everett comes out of the toilet. Oh, goes, that's a great sketch. I'm here in this gentleman's lavatory. That's in, a brilliant. Uh, sketch, and then you can hear Barry Croft off going, "Come on, Bill, hold it together." <laughs> <laughs> I'm that's pretty certain great, it's Barry. That is a great sketch. Yeah. actually, that is a great sketch. Well, I'm going to finish with um, a John Peel off because I said I was going to do oh, this. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> Andy, you can be the arbiter of the of the better of the two impressions. Are you going to bear in mind that Mr. Eds has given us all this time for nothing? Same phrase. We're just no. We're, let's just let's just have an, an input. I've got some names of bands here okay, uh, already okay. prepared, so this is an advantage for me. Okay. But Mr. Rince, would would you like to take the stage first? Of no. All? You well, you throw the the name of the band, and uh... I'd like you to introduce um, the 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 toasted tea cake triumvirate. Uh, I have to admit that uh, when, I, when I first heard the name Toasted Tea Cake Triumvirate, I, I presume that was just a, some kind of joke name, but it is in fact a, a group of people with uh, two plastic knives and uh, one stainless steel one just scraping uh, tea cakes. And uh, this session's one of the most interesting ones because uh, one of the tea cakes is uh, slightly burnt, which gives it a, a different uh, resonance. So uh, here are the uh, Toasted Tea Cakes in action. Wow, I can't beat that. I can't beat well, that. Well, he's resigned already. No, go on, what's your one? <clears throat> well, I'll, uh, I'm going to use that as a list of, a, 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 one of, as a list of uh, bands that I've prepared here. <clears throat> On tonight's programme, Bernard Braden's <laughs> foot problem, Kentucky Fried Twit, No More Porridge, The Toasted Tea Cake Triumvirate, Herbie Goes Bananas, The Phosphates, Spock and Raymond Burr. But first, boiled beef and carrots. That's interesting. You do it from a slightly different time. I think right. I'm, I'm later probably. Yeah, right? you're later. You're 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 that later, <laughs> slightly kind of bored. Uh, not bored. It was glad to be doing it. He but you know, Sheila's given him uh, you know quite a uh, it's a couple of uh, glasses of red bun now, and uh, there was uh, that joy where when it when it was uh, Sheila's uh, big seventy eight. You remember that where uh, you know, and there was. Uh, it's a lovely collection, actually, of, you know, the bit where you suddenly get a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit yeah. lacrimose. And, um, yeah. When he's talking was, about his family, it yeah. becomes a softer. Well, there's still, and I've repeated this line many, well, I remember one of the, I remember once where he, when he started crying because... Uh, and, always uh, yeah. always crying? Yeah. Always crying? Yeah, it's a man, it, it was, it, 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 uh, and a woman just uh, suddenly walked out on the, on the road, and, uh, and I, I suddenly realised, I'd just, uh, I'd, if I hadn't swerved, then... Um, I'm beginning to tear up a bit here now, and it was uh, and it was just that. 
But the, the line that gets me every time, and I, I even remember where I was when I read that Radio Times family album. I was, I was uh, in, in a flat in Archway, and I've said this so many times, but it's one of those things where you know, again, it's about, I suppose, part of the embarrassment of, of being in any way emotional. I mean, I remember when I did the eulogy at my mum's funeral last year, and, and you know, I think various people said, well, you're doing the eulogy, that's going to be a lot of trouble. And I just walked round and round and would have thought, I'm not allowed to in any way be tearful because I'm there for family. And so then, though, by talking about pop culture, you can have you can find these moments where you are allowed to have, I suppose, part of that moment of being utterly genuine, which is why sometimes having more, you know, talking with you, it becomes embarrassing afterwards because I've found an alibi to where the, there is, you know, no, you're not kind of adding some mask, whatever. But it was that moment after Sheila had her aneurysm, and I'm sure the. Uh, but uh, he wrote this lovely column, which was just thanking the doctors and nurses because she was very close to death. And uh, and the uh, the closing line, as far I hope this is still verbatim, I may well check. Was uh, uh, Sheila's just walked into the kitchen now, and uh, she's. Uh, uh, walking with a stick and wearing a hat to cover a rather unsightly scar, but I have to say she's uh, she's never looked more beautiful than she does now. And it's just you know that moment of and what they had you know is uh, is something that it's, it's like that moment Rick Mail uh, Exeter University where he gets his doctorate or whatever, mm. and uh, you know that that final line about love. What, yeah. what, do you, do you what he says? He says something about freedom is important. Yeah, he talks about freedom and the, uh, love is the answer. Yeah. Love is the answer. And again, this is the problem. These things have been made to sound trite. And yet, the research that shows, not just in humans, but in so many different animals, that to have comfort, to have, you know, the, the, the hugs of a parent to have all those things they really some of the the meanest minds that we see at the moment i can only think can be that mean because they didn't have those or they were were perhaps you know well no but that's not love that bit where they're constantly always being told their best because of course that's one of the things that you probably see in, in possibly some of the kind of farage people um and in other people i think it's that if you if you haven't had the fortune of that so I think love is the answer. John Lennon it's said that, didn't he? Love is the answer, and you know that for sure. Is that right? Oh yeah, probably yeah. Well, on that note, that's quite a nice note on which to end. Yeah, let's uh, let's end there with uh, love is the answer. Uh, Todd Rundgren uh, said that as, as well, I believe. And yes. we're saying it tonight, ladies and gentlemen, for your listening pleasure. Robin Ince. Oh, this is your life. <laughs> uh, should have done the whole thing as Stuart Lee. Oh, can you finish as yeah. Stuart Lee? Can you Didn't, say, uh, uh, this has been you know, the Dredgeland no, podcast, uh, spectacular. That was, you know, like just a waste of everyone's time. You know, that was the, you know, Dredgeland podcast. It's just like, there's better things. <laughs>